This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. Sanctions don't work by themselves. Sanctions are enormously more effective if you have other countries amplifying what we're doing. And if you have sort of grudging acceptance of U.S. sanctions rather than embrace of U.S. sanctions, you get evasion. Tell us where we are with regard to the reimposition of sanctions on Iran. The sanctions on the payment for the sale of Iranian oil will be coming back into effect. The sanctions will have an impact. There's no question they will have an impact. I think Iran's trying to figure out what it is that the U.S. is trying to accomplish. You know, what is the U.S. policy goal here? I think that the administration made a serious misstep in the Singapore summit because it was an important leverage that we had over the North Koreans. You know, get them to do something before you give them a meeting with the president. And I think the effect has been that the sanctions are not nearly as powerful today as they were nine months ago. David Cohen is a law partner at Wilmer Hale, where he leads the firm's financial and business integrity group and where he represents a vast array of clients on matters involving national security. David served for eight years in the Obama administration in senior positions, including as the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist Financing, as Undersecretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, and ultimately as the Deputy Director of CIA. I recently had a chance to sit down with David to discuss the increasingly important role that sanctions are playing in national security. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From end-to-end cybersecurity to high-energy lasers to quantum computers, Raytheon is there. Advancing technologies that protect people, information, and infrastructure. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. David, thanks for joining us. It is great to have you. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Michael. David, as you know, I have wanted to have you on the podcast for some time because sanctions have become a very important tool of American foreign and national security policy. And I think you're the perfect person to explain how all this works. Well, I hope so. We'll see. Perhaps the place to start is to say that 
for most of my career in government, I watched multiple U.S. administrations impose sanctions, but with very little effect. But starting in the administration of George W. Bush and then into the Obama administration and now into the Trump administration, sanctions seem to be much more effective. What changed? Well, I think a couple of things changed. I think principally what happens is that we moved from a approach to sanctions that was focused on trade and focused on broad-based sanctions. So think about the Cuba embargo to financial sanctions and much more targeted sanctions. And that meant that we, instead of trying to interdict goods traveling around the world, focused on trying to stop money moving around the world. And the U.S. has a asymmetric advantage in trying to interdict financial flows because of the role of the U.S. dollar, the role of the U.S. financial system, the role of the U.S. economy. Um, We have better insight and we have, frankly, better leverage that we can use to apply sanctions if we use financial sanctions rather than trade sanctions. Was that tool always there and we just didn't see it? And this was just an innovation? Or did something happen that made it a tool that it wasn't before? So over time, as the role of the U.S. dollar became more important post-World War II, this tool became more available. But I think it was in part an innovation. And I think you're right to to date it back to the Bush administration. I think that's when this innovation really first began in using financial tools and as the, the key element of our sanctions program. And I think we continued through the Obama administration to refine that tool and to expand it. And, and I would say the one other, I think, important development, and it's you know somewhat controversial, frankly, is the movement from what are known as primary sanctions to secondary sanctions, which are sort of very much in the in the news these days with respect to Iran. But you know, I the a primary sanction is essentially saying that no US person can hold funds for or do a transaction for someone that we've designated. So whether it's trade or moving money or whatever. Or anything, right. So so take for ex- for example an Iranian bank that is providing funds to Hezbollah. If we put a sanction on that bank, a primary sanction on that bank, no U.S. bank, no U.S. business, no U.S. person can have anything to do with that Iranian bank. It cuts them off from the U.S. financial system, freezes their assets, can't transact. A secondary sanction sort of expands the reach of our sanctions enormously. And what it says is to a foreign person, so you know, a, a bank in Germany, it says you've got a choice to make. You can either do business with that sanctioned Iranian bank or you can have access to the U.S. market. We don't have any direct jurisdiction over that German bank. We can't find that bank. We can't you know, put that bank executive in jail if they do business with a designated Iranian bank. But what we can do is say if you choose to do business with the Iranian bank that we've designated, we're going to cut you off from the U.S., and that's an enormously powerful tool because of the importance of the U.S. economy. And that's so that's another innovation. That's another innovation, and that that substantially enhanced the power of U.S. financial sanctions. Can you talk about the personal role that Stuart Levy played in this transition? For those who don't know who Stuart is, he was the Under Secretary of Treasury 
responsible for sanctions right. the last five years of the Bush administration and the first two years right. of the Obama administration. One of the few officials who were who were kept, you actually were his deputy right. um, before you took his job. Talk about his role in all of this. Yeah, so Stewart was sort of there at the you know, origination of this strategy and in sort of thinking through how to use financial sanctions. His principal focus was on counterterrorism and counterterrorist financing. And so you can use these sanctions to stop terrorist groups, Al-Qaeda was particularly the focus at the time, from raising, moving, storing, and, and spending money. We then expanded during Stewart's time and then into the Obama administration into focusing on people and, and businesses that were involved in supporting, in particular, Iran's nuclear weapons program. The same technique, trying to interdict the funding that they needed in order to buy the material for, for Iran's program. So those sort of targeted sanctions on whether it was terrorist financiers or those supporting nuclear program were sort of the, the first wave of financial sanction innovation. We, we then you know, moved from those sort of targeted sanctions on illicit activity, terrorist financing, WMD support, to to broader topics like using financial sanctions. The geopolitical issues. Exactly. So using financial sanctions to impair Iran's ability to sell its oil, for instance, uh, or to get access to the revenue from the oil it was selling. You can use financial sanctions in that way, and so not in a targeted against a particular individual, but to try and put broader-based pressure on an economy. Great, great. So so let's talk now about how this process works, right, in practice. So talk about how we go from no sanctions on a country to a set of sanctions. What yeah. what does that process look like? Well, <laughs> as you as you noted, sanctions have become something of the go-to tool in US foreign policy and national security policy. So what happens is, you know, a new issue arises, you know, Venezuela or, you know, most recently there was a new sanctions program that was, you know, put into effect focused on interference in US elections. My experience is you're called to a meeting at the White House, you go to the situation room, the you know, deputy national security advisor, national security advisor says, we've got this problem with X country. What are we going to do about it? And, you know, the State Department says, well, we've got these diplomatic options. Defense Department says we've got these military options. But we don't want to use them. We want to use them. <laughs> and, and, you know, the diplomatic options people think are not going to be ultimately effective. And so people turn to the Treasury Department and say, OK, what kind of sanctions can we impose here? And, you know, as a result, we have now 28 sanctions programs, you know, ranging from Russia sanctions, Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, Syria, to topics like cyber uh, activity, human rights violations, transnational criminal organizations, a whole host of different national security issues where we have a sanctions program because you have a meeting at the White House and somebody says we need something between the sort of persuasive effect of diplomacy and uh, you know, the, the hammer military of, hammer. Of covert action or yeah. military. Yeah, exactly. And you know, sanctions are right in that sweet spot. And, and in your experience, how high is the decision-making on sanctions? Well, ultimately, it requires an action by the president to establish a new sanctions program. Executive order? An executive order under a statute called IEPA. But every sanctions program, you know, with minor exceptions, comes from a presidential determination in an executive order to implement a new program. Has a, has a U.S. company, this, I, I just thought of this, has a U.S. company ever challenged 
a sanctions regime in court and said, you're blocking me from doing commerce? You know, you're under, you're, you're violating my constitutional rights here? Yeah. And the answer is the president has ultimate authority under Article 2? Yeah, well, it's, it's a little more complicated than that. But, but yes, there have been challenges both to programs as a whole and to specific implementation of, of sanctions on individuals or on businesses. And, you know, because this is in the realm of national security and because it is authorized by a statute that Congress passed, uh, you know, about two decades ago or now, courts have upheld the, the Treasury Department's uh, authority to implement these programs. Okay, so let me ask you to talk about something that I think most people don't understand. And that's that once sanctions are in place, you don't just sit back and watch. Right. Right. The U.S. government in general and Treasury in particular, I remember you traveling all over the world, right. are very active in enforcing the sanctions. So how does that work? Yeah. Well, it works because sanctions don't work by themselves. And so what you need to do is be active in trying to ensure that you have people complying with them. I think there are basically four key elements for an effective sanctions program. One is you need a clearly articulated policy goal that you're trying to achieve, like trying to persuade Iran to abandon its nuclear weapons program. You need sanctions to be part of a broader tool set. So sanctions are not a, a policy unto themselves. They work best if you have you know, diplomatic you know, efforts, you have aid efforts, you have messaging efforts, you may even have military posturing. If it's part of a broader effort, sanctions can work. You need good intelligence. You need to know who it is that you're trying to sanction. You need to know whether your sanctions are, are working. You know who's cheating. You know who's cheating, exactly. And intelligence is critical in figuring that out. And you need international support and assistance. You know, although the United States is, you know, as I noted before, sort of the center of the world for the financial system, there's only so much you can accomplish just by leveraging the U.S. financial system. Sanctions are enormously more effective if you have other countries amplifying what we're doing. And so a lot of what I did when I was at Treasury, my my predecessors and my successors are doing, is traveling around the world, explaining our policy, um, why we're doing what we're doing, trying to engender support from other countries and trying to get them to use their own laws and their own ability to persuade the companies and financial institutions and business people in their country to abide by U.S. sanctions if not the sanctions that that country is imposing. So, so without all of this really hard work yeah. that you're talking about, is there a natural tendency to an erosion of sanctions over time? Yeah, absolutely. To a sanctions regime? Yeah. It's just they are, they are much less effective in their initiation if you don't have a amplification from partners around the world. And if you have sort of grudging acceptance of U.S. sanctions rather than embrace of U.S. sanctions, you get evasion. You get both, you know, direct evasion and then a whole bunch of sort of sub rosa under the table efforts that weaken the effectiveness of of U.S. sanctions. So what do you think are the keys to getting the international support you need? Fundamentally, what you need is a policy that the sanctions are designed to achieve that others subscribe to. If you don't have policy agreement on the goal that the sanctions are trying to achieve, then it's very difficult to get others to abide by your sanctions, much less implement their own sanctions that are complementary. 
and I think this is a this is a very interesting question. Is there a risk associated with the overuse of this tool? Yes. There's no question that there's both a policy risk and there is, I think, potentially a an effect on the role of the U.S. financial system and the role of the U.S. dollar. The policy risk is, you know, if we use sanctions to try to essentially get others to adhere to our policy choices that they are not otherwise supportive of, it it weakens the effectiveness of the sanctions and it creates a whole bunch of sort of stray voltage in the relationship because, you know, people don't like it if you put sanctions on their businesses, on their banks, on their people because they're violating U.S. sanctions when it's inconsistent with what that country is trying to achieve. So there's a there's a policy cost. On the economic side, there is a concern that the use of sanctions will accelerate the development of alternatives to the sort of U.S. financial system and to the use of the U.S. dollar. The German foreign minister just argued for a new right. mechanism for moving money around the world so it, they could avoid U.S. sanctions. Right. Particularly with respect to Iran, the EU has been talking about putting in place this special purpose vehicle that would facilitate essentially trade in Iranian oil and German goods that would be outside of the reach of the dollar and outside the reach of the U.S. financial system. But the, the Chinese also are very interested in developing a, a means for international transactions that is outside of the dollar and you know, where they're not dependent on the U.S. financial system, they're not dependent on clearing trades through the U.S. dollar, but it operates entirely outside of the U.S. reach. That is, they like that both because it gets them further away from U.S. sanctions exposure, but it also amplifies and enhances their role in the world. And the use of sanctions, particularly in situations where you don't have a broad-based support for the policy that sanctions are trying to achieve, I think runs the risk of accelerating the development of these mechanisms that are outside of the U.S. financial system. So another argument for why a multilateral approach is better than a bilateral approach. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with David Cohen. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes... We can make it a safer place. Okay, so let's talk about three specific cases, David. The first is Iran. Mm-hmm. Tell us where we are with regard to the reimposition of sanctions on Iran. Let's start there. So the, the basic structure of the Iran deal was the Iranians agreed to restrictions on their nuclear program in exchange for the suspension of some very powerful sanctions on Iran's ability to sell its oil and to earn revenue from the oil that it sold. We, we, didn't, we, we didn't eliminate those sanctions. We suspended those sanctions with the threat of snapback, the idea being that they would snap back if the Iranians didn't comply. Well, I mean, as it turned out, the Iranians were complying with the nuclear back. deal, but we're <laughs> snapping them back anyway. 
uh, and we're snapping them back unilaterally. So it's just the U.S. sanctions are coming back into effect. And in particular, on November 5th, the sanctions on the sale or really the, the payment for the sale of Iranian oil will be coming back into effect. Uh, and the way that works is if you are, you know, China and you're buying oil from Iran, the bank that is involved in paying Iran for that oil is subject to secondary sanctions, subject to being cut off from the U.S. if it pays Iran for the oil that's being imported unless you get what's called a significant reduction exemption, which means that China is significantly reducing the amount of oil that it's purchasing from Iran. The U.S. will say, "Okay, you can pay for this reduced amount of oil. Those sanctions are going back into effect on November 5th. And how effective do you think those will be in creating pain in the Iranian economy? So they will be effective, but they will, will be not as effective, I think, as the sanctions were in the 2014-2015 timeframe because you don't have agreement around the world in the, in the effort. And so what you've got in Europe essentially is the coalition of the unwilling. You've got a bunch of European countries that are – their companies are backing away from Iran – not because they want to. They, they had been investing in Iran after 2015, but on threat of being cut off from the U.S. if they don't back away. So you've got this coalition of the unwilling in Europe. You've got a couple of countries, China and Russia in particular, who are, I think, looking for ways to frustrate U.S. policy here. Um, so they will comply to some extent, but I think we'll also be looking for ways to avoid and evade U.S. sanctions. We should remind people that they were part and they absolutely. were part of the coalition right. the first time around. Right. We had the, the P5 plus one, you know, the among the P5 were Russia and China. Right. They were they were part of the effort back in the Obama administration. They are quite decidedly not part of the effort now. And then you've got some other countries like India and Turkey that are a little bit on the fence right now, but also are not supportive of the Trump administration's decision to withdraw from the from the Iran deal. So the the sanctions will have an impact. There's no question they will have an impact. They noted there are many European companies, particularly the big companies, are backing out of Iran. The Iranian economy itself is quite weak. The value of the real has been plummeting. I think it's, you know, years down. of economic mismanagement, years of economic mismanagement. They have a, you know, a financial sector that is not all that attractive to begin with. And so it's a it's a difficult place to do business. And there is now the threat that if you do business with Iran, whether it's purchasing Iranian oil or doing business with other entities in the Iranian economy, that you, you know, European company or you Asian company run the risk of being cut off from the U.S. And that's a that's a powerful threat. So there will be you know, a a noticeable impact on the Iranian economy. And, and what do you think, and this is a different question than sanctions, but what do you think Iran's strategy will be yeah. going forward? Well, I think that's the real unknown here, is what the Iranian strategy will be. I think there are a couple of important variables here. One is, I think Iran's trying to figure out what it is that the U.S. is trying to accomplish. You know, what is the U.S. policy goal here? Is it just to get a better nuclear deal? is they get a broader deal that encompasses things like ballistic missile tests, support for Hezbollah, you know, other misbehavior in the region, whether it's in Syria or Yemen. 
Is it to bring about so much instability in Iran that that it leads to regime change? I think there's been a lack of clarity on the U.S. side on what the ultimate policy goal is. And so from the Iranian perspective, I think they're looking at that and don't know quite what it is that the U.S. wants here. You know, Secretary Pompeo gave a speech a few months ago where he laid out sort of the 12 demands that the U.S. has for Iran, which are all, you know, demands that would be you know, very much in the U.S. national security interest, things like stop supporting Hezbollah, stop malicious cyber activities, stop supporting the Syrian regime. But from the Iranian perspective, I think they look at look at that and say he essentially wants the end of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And, you know, so I think you're not going to they're not going to be willing to do. They're not going to be willing to do. Right. That is not a, a place where I think the Iranians are prepared to negotiate. So I think they will, as I said, endure a fair amount of pain from these sanctions. But their willingness to engage with the Trump administration, I think, is very much in doubt. And I suspect what they will do is try to wait out the administration. See what happens in 2020. See what happens in 2020 and see if they can if they can get through this. And they have something now that they didn't have back in 2015, which is both a sort of safety valve of the, the Chinese in particular, but also the Russians who are, I think, prepared to... to help the Iranians get through this period where, you know, back in 2015, the Russians and the Chinese were telling the Iranians they needed to deal at the table. And they also have a sort of diplomatic support around the world, sort of a psychological support. They are... They're the good guys They're the good guys here, right? And one of the things that was, I think, quite powerful in the lead-up to the Iran deal was that Iran was isolated, not just economically, but diplomatically. Today, that diplomatic isolation is, you know, frankly, ours, not theirs. Um, and they have, you know, some economic uh, support. That and they as long find. as they stick to the deal, as long right. as they continue to do what they're supposed to do under the deal, they're going to maintain that. Right. right. Okay, North Korea, your assessment of the sanctions regime that the Trump administration put in place. So I think it has been quite effective. They, the Trump administration early on did something which I think was long overdue and the right thing to do, which was to apply secondary sanctions in the North Korea context. The, the difficult issue with North Korea has always been that there's not, there's not enough economic activity in North Korea to sanction directly. The only way to really put significant pressure on North Korea is to put pressure on Chinese entities. And the way to do that is to threaten secondary sanctions against Chinese entities if they continue to do business with designated North Korean entities. And early on, the Trump administration embraced that and applied those sanctions and did a bunch of work to to ensure that those sanctions were being adhered to. Why didn't we do that? We didn't do that, I think, principally because we made a choice about where we wanted to apply pressure on China. There were a number of areas of concern, whether it was the South China Sea, Chinese cyber activity, Chinese economic activity. And I think the the judgment was we needed to to choose among 
those, you know, all quite serious threats to U.S. national security interests. And if we leaned in hard on Chinese business activity with North Korea, harder. I mean, which is not to say we didn't do anything. We were we were working this issue. But if we leaned in very hard on Chinese activity with North Korea, it would come at the expense of trying to get progress on some other issues, which we did get progress on. And I think that was the, the policy judgment to to emphasize some issues over the others. I think the Trump administration, yeah, frankly, I think what they decided to do is just do everything. It was sort of a, chick, a kitchen sink approach well, to they China. Also had, they also had what the North Koreans were doing, right? And test even, after test and missile launch right. after missile launch. Right. So, so there was more... So the threat was, was becoming more real. The threat was becoming more real. And I think the Chinese were were prepared to work with us more on North Korea, didn't see it as much as a threat to China. They saw it more as something that was beneficial to China to try to tamp down this North Korean behavior. And so the playing field was a little bit more favorable. So it seems to me, and get your sense on this, it seems to me that because of Kim Jong-un's charm offensive, that the sanctions have have eroded. And there's some holes there. Is is that your sense? That is my sense. And I think, I also think the administration made a serious misstep in the Singapore summit. My view is that the sanctions were starting to really have some serious effect. We had the Chinese working with us. And the president took this offer of a summit meeting with Kim Jong-un, an offer that had been on the table for a long time. This was not the first time that the North Koreans had said what we North need North Korean here. leaders forever have wanted have to meet forever, with the president. wanted to meet with the president. And they have never previously been accorded that opportunity because it was an important leverage that we had over the North Koreans, you know, get them to do something before you give them a meeting with the president. Here we had, you know, President Trump, I think, quite prematurely jump into this summit with Kim Jong-un, which, and then on the way out of Singapore, declare that the problem has been solved. The effect of that was to weaken the resolve of the international community to apply pressure on North Korea. Didn't turn it off. But it weakened the sanctions. It weakened the willingness of the Chinese to continue to work with us. It weakens you know, others around the world, although the Chinese are, are by far the most important actor here. And I think the effect has been that the sanctions are not nearly as powerful today as they were nine months ago. And if we get to the point where Secretary Pompeo decides that the North Koreans aren't willing to negotiate here seriously, yeah, right. how difficult... Will it be to ratchet those sanctions back up? I think it'll be difficult. I think it'll be more difficult than it was to ratchet them up at the beginning of the administration because, you know, first of all, you won't have the provocation that you cited earlier of all these missile tests and the nuclear tests to to uh, to point to. And I think even more so, you will have others and the Chinese in particular saying, look, you you made this bet. You know, this was, you know, we played along with you. We worked with you to impose these sanctions. You said this this problem was solved. Now you're declaring that it's not solved. I just think that the, the diplomatic underpinnings of a good sanctions program will be harder to, to stitch back together. Yeah. Okay, really quickly, Russia. Yeah. And I don't want to ask about Ukraine-related sanctions or 2016-related sanctions. I want to ask you about the sanctions related to the use of CW mm-hmm. uh, against the f- former Russian intelligence officer and his daughter in London. There's a set of sanctions that we put into place. There's another set coming. The president's got a tough decision to make. 
Right. The, the way these sanctions work is there is an initial relatively mild set of sanctions that go into effect upon the initial determination that a chemical weapon has been used. And then there's a period of time where the administration is told by statute to get essentially assurances from the country that used the chemical weapons that that they're never going to do it again. And, you know, you need to have an inspection. You need to have various assurances given. That's not going to happen. The Russians are not going to allow this inspection. I suspect they won't provide the assurances and they won't uh, make the other uh, take the other steps that are necessary for the president to certify that the second phase of these sanctions don't need to go into effect. He can waive the second uh, set of sanctions and they are they're due to go into effect, I think, right after Thanksgiving. What I suspect is going to happen is we will look and see what happens in the election, look and see whether the Russians interfere in the in the midterm elections. And frankly, look, the administration is going to look at the outcome of the election and it's going to make a political judgment on how much you know, pain they're willing to endure by waiving the second set of sanctions on uh, on Russia. Which will be taken or, in a political context here in the United States, right. even if it's a sound national security decision. Exactly. And if they don't waive these sanctions, there are some very, some very powerful economic impacts that will result, including you know, potentially cutting off the ability of Russian airlines to land in the United States, you know, access to the U.S. financial system, a whole host of things that would be, you know, I think the Russians would regard as quite undesirable and and can only be avoided if you don't have the certification that the that the Russians would need to come up with under the, the CBW statute or the president just makes a just waves these sanctions and is willing to take the, the political heat domestically for doing so. Okay, David, let me switch gears and ask a couple of questions about your time as the deputy director of CIA. Sure. You served there the last two years of the Obama administration, an incredibly important time. Pretty good job, right? That's a great job. <laughs> it's a great job. <laughs> as you we know. should do a whole podcast <laughs> on what it's like to be deputy director of CIA. Yeah, yeah. But more seriously, you were there when CIA and the IC came to the conclusions it did about Russian interference in the election. Right. Was there any doubt in your mind at that time about the IC's conclusions? None. And have you seen anything since you left government that has changed your mind in any way? Not at all. I mean, I think the only all that I've seen since I've been out and I I left at noon on Inauguration Day has reinforced that you know, high confidence judgment that the Russians uh, interfered in our election. And, you know, one of the points that I make when I talk to people about that judgment is that the first aspect of the judgment that the intelligence community made was that the Russians were looking to interfere in our democracy. It had nothing to do with Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. It was about the Russians' desire to cause turmoil in the United States. The second judgment was that they preferred Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton and were trying to undermine what they thought was going to be a Clinton administration. But what sometimes gets lost in all of this discussion is that the intelligence community came to a high-confidence judgment that that President Putin directed an effort against the United States principally to create turmoil and to sow division. It doesn't have to do with Democrats or Republicans. It has to do with undermining one of the foundations of our democracy. And that was a, a judgment that, that we reached. And I have 
you know, no reason to doubt. From a from a policy perspective, and I know as the deputy director of CIA, you were not in a policy job. But from a policy perspective, do you believe we should have hit back harder on Russia? I think we we should have, and and I and and this was, I think, a, a misjudgment in a sense. I think we we should have in December, but there was also a sense that there was a new president coming in, and. I think part of the policy consideration was to leave some headroom, essentially, for the new president and his administration to demonstrate that this isn't a partisan issue, that this is an issue about attacking American democracy, and to sort of leave some, you know, some powder that was dry that the new administration could then could then fire off. And I think it was obviously a misjudgment because that's not where the Trump administration went. But I think we in the Obama administration, at the tail end of the Obama administration, held back a little bit on what we could have done so that there would be room for the new administration to take action. David, thank you very much for sharing your time with us. Thank you. That was David Cohen. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.